This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we have a slightly different type of show for you. One of Fresh Ed's producers, Lushik Wamba, created an amazing podcast about the experiences of international students at one small college in the USA. Over one million international students currently study at colleges and universities across America. Why did they choose to study in the USA? What can we learn from their experiences? Lushik's podcast gives voice to some of those students, showcasing the promises and challenges of internationalization. Born and raised in Cairo, Lushik Waba came of age during the 2011 Egyptian Revolution. This was a time when citizen journalism flourished, and she saw firsthand the power of an informed public. Growing up in such an environment inspired Lushik to work in media. At 16, she earned a scholarship to study at the United World College in Bosnia-Herzegovina. After high school, she moved to Vermont to attend Bennington College. She just graduated in May, but before doing so, she put together this podcast, featuring many of her fellow international students. Lushik is determined to pursue a career in producing podcasts and documentaries that focus on issues affecting marginalized populations around the world. We know Lushik has a bright future in media in front of her, well beyond the Fresh End podcast. So we are extremely lucky to be able to air one of her first podcasts for you today. Before we start, I'd like to give a content warning. Some of the students you will hear today use potentially offensive language. If you're not into that or are with small children, we have posted a beeped version online. I hope you enjoy the show. Things that are probably relevant to me when I meet a new person is where I'm from because like they can't tell from just looking at me and like I don't like being assumed where I'm from. I'm from Swaziland. Not a lot of people say anything when they look at me but as soon as I speak people ask me where are you from. They definitely cannot tell that I study video or what my interests are or what goes on in my brain. The class I come from is not something people expect me to be from when they look at me. I don't think anyone could assume my nationality, that I'm from Kosovo, because almost everyone I talked to here is like, oh, Kosovo, where's that? <laughs> you know? People can't tell that my favorite food is popcorn. They can't tell that I was an only child raised by a single mom. Something that people can't tell about me when they see me is that I am actually very sweet. <laughs> Everyone you heard is an international student at Bennington College, a small liberal arts school in southern Vermont. For these students, every social interaction on campus is a negotiation, a compromise between self-expression and assimilation. Even something as simple as introducing yourself in this new environment can get pretty complicated. I feel that the first part of introducing yourself is your name, and I think that the first time in my life at Bennington ever in my dance class, I introduced myself as Aditya Jeet, which is my full first name. And it was interesting because all these people were playing this game, which is that one person says their name and then the whole class repeats it. So it's like an echo. And then I said my name 
and then there was like a second of silence and then everybody was like <laughs> like they just sort of fumbled through it but yeah i think i would like to introduce myself as aditya jeet kang and i'm from india i'm a senior at bennington college but yeah i've been using addy since 10th grade i guess but i didn't realize that it was a problem because i was in my own country and i am the racial majority and i don't necessarily think that there are specific institutions that are set against me specifically in terms of race or caste but coming to the us and actually understanding what it means to be a brown person but then to also then extend that to my context in india made me think in retrospect as to how that was indeed problematic from the first place to begin with i'm cesar that's my name um which i prefer to be called to go by to other people because it's more friendly than my full name which is no cesar it's not much of a difference but like it's more friendly it definitely is i'm shachi i uh have gotten used to introducing myself in a particular way after being at Bennington for this long which is saying I'm an international student would never say that in general to introduce myself would say I study political theory and economics and have been inquiring about just ways of living in post-colonial settings for the past couple of years my name is Edio I'm from Albania and uh, I'm an international student on an F1 visa in the US. Now, what I shouldn't disclose my visa status publicly. ICE is listening to the like the channels and the the internets and the, I'm a, a student in the United States. Student of life because I graduated from college. They also have something else in common. All of them attended a United World College or a UWC. UWC is a network of scholarship-based international high schools existing in 17 different countries. When you apply to a UWC, you apply through your home country, and if you get selected, you can be sent to any of the 17 schools. Some end up halfway around the world, but there are those who do go to UWCs in their own country. The UWC movement aims to make education a force to unite people, nations, and cultures for peace and a sustainable future. For these students, it is not their first time living away from home or even in another country, but that doesn't mean that their transition from a social justice-oriented high school to an American liberal arts college has been easy. We have a little over a million students now studying in the United States, international students in colleges and universities across the country. That was Jenny J. Lee, a professor at the Center for the Study of Higher Education at the University of Arizona. So, these students have been abroad or at least in boarding schools since they were 16 or 17. But why did they leave in the first place? A lot of people assume that international students leave their countries seeking upward mobility, which is true for some, but is it always the case? I come from a very stable financial background. I never felt that there was any lacking in my education i never felt that anything was lacking in terms of food on the table or my access to transportation the one thing that was lacking i think is my access to internet and access to technology which is having access to a computer a lot of work started happening on computers 
specifically schoolwork, that became a barrier for me because I needed to do all these research projects for which a lot of my peers had access to internet and computers at their homes so they could do them with ease whereas I had to <laughs> I would go to an internet cafe and I would pay 10 rupees an hour to access a computer on which I would have working internet a working browser and that I could also print things from I've always been aware of my class I would say but it was in ways that I didn't necessarily give credit to. As a kid, I always had this understanding that there were things that other people had that I had to pretend to have. Because if I said otherwise, I wasn't really sure if I would be in the same social circles or not. So for example, being a kid, I remember lying that my family owned a car. Whereas we didn't own a car, up until 2011, I want to say. So for 12 years, I lied <laughs> to my friends that we had a car. I just could not tell them that my father was like riding a Vespa, which is like a scooter. I felt really ashamed. Um, in case I missed the bus, I would ask my father to drop me off a block away so that I could walk to the gate of the school instead of having other students see that I arrived on a scooter that's like about to break down. Yeah, it's not his fault. Like I felt ashamed because of like the social like circumstances that I was in. And I think my father understood that. There was a lot of shame around like my lunchbox. <laughs> like I would open my lunchbox and it would be leftovers from dinner the night before. Whereas lunchboxes of other students or like a lot of my friends would be these like really nice pressed sandwiches that were neat and clean and like had a specific smell or like I don't know not a specific smell but it was like a it wasn't like curry in a box you know I have a twin sister she has a cerebral palsy that was caused when she was born because of a poorly performed blood transfusion like she is 19 years old but in her head she's still 12 8 years old so it's always a it's more of an older sister, younger sister um, relation. I wanted to run away from my family because it was very, it was very complicated for me to see that my life was going in such a way that I was gonna have to take care of my sister as soon as I graduated university or as soon as I started working. So my whole thing was I want to run away. I don't want to be here anymore. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go home often, which also made me feel guilty because my sister did. It was weird for her and it was very complicated for her to understand that I was not living at home, but that I was still in Costa Rica. Going to a better school and having the chance to live abroad, I would have a better life. In terms of prospects for my life, abroad is always just make money, not even necessarily better. I think actually a lot of people talk about like how it's worse because you miss your people and you miss your place placidness and your land in many ways and you also miss your childhood so you're you feel like you can vicariously you know it becomes home becomes a magical inexistent oasis of at least feeling right at least feeling like you have the right to be there you have the right to exist there but abroad is always make money I think there's not two ways about it like even the people that talk about like always talk about like a better life a better life because you can make money it's not about like making more money it's about literally about making money like I was on a mission to go abroad and 
once you have left the country, you can find ways to just piggy around abroad. I was also on a mission to go abroad. I don't know when it started, but from a young age I had this dream of living somewhere else where life was just better. There was no clear path to achieving this dream, but I believed in it so deeply. And as I grew up, I realized that it wasn't my dream alone. You see, this dream is the American dream. The dream that we could achieve great things regardless of our race, or class, or religion, or anything else that held us back. And even though it was the American dream, it could be achieved in any Western country, which we expected would welcome us with open arms once we finally made it there. But as we all know, dreams can be very far from reality. I arrive in New York, I get a cab, and go to the bus station, and just like on the way to the bus station, there's so many homeless people. And I was like, wow, this is New York, this is the capital of the world. So much like inequality, I, I honestly didn't expect it. They're so lucky that you can't capture a smell on film, because I don't think New York would have like the same kind of like image it has now. I thought I was gonna get to Bergen, which is where the airport is, and I would kiss the floor. I just, I, I think I, I, I like imagined gold. I imagined that the airport was like draped in gold. But then I got to this airport and it was very dirty. The floor was far from kissing material, very far. I did not know what I was doing there. I was in shock. Like I was in complete shock. And I think it's mostly because I felt poor as fuck. I felt very poor. And I had no idea how I was gonna like make it here. I was alone, like I, I didn't have parents to send money. Like I just felt very alone. It's like my dad just died and like our life was in turmoil and Albania had no prospects and especially us in Albania had no prospects or in the world at that time really. I used to be really effeminate as a boy and no matter what I did it's not like I could pass as like a, the idea of like a straight male. So I remember me trying to use the internet also like going to these internet cafes to figure out who I am. And this is also, so this time of like 2000, 2008, 2009, going all the way until like 2013, also coincides with this whole time in the US of this whole rhetoric of like, born this way, it's not a choice, I can't change who I am. So I definitely consumed this media that was all about quote-unquote gay liberation for me because I related to it. I was like, yeah, like, it's not my choice. Like, stop treating me this way. But I, what, what that led me to believe is that somehow gay liberation was also related to whiteness or that it was also related to, like, a Western ideal or that it was somehow only existing in the U.S. But it was a direct effect of the media that I was consuming constantly of all these coming out stories like <laughs> like I don't have coming out stories in India you know uh, like what do you, what where does like a 13 year old gay boy in India go to like find coming out stories like when you google coming out stories you get these YouTube videos or you get these like blog articles or blog posts or like you have your human rights campaign pushing coming out stories or coming national coming out day it was such a horror to me I was like how are these people coming out like I just have no idea so I didn't necessarily associate UWC as a space where I could just be myself, but I associated it as a place where there would be foreigners who were not Indian, and then therefore it would be a safer space for me 
because all the media that I'd consumed had shown white people being tolerant towards homosexuality. Well, I really wanted my gay liberation. <laughs> yeah, I just really wanted a boyfriend. I thought that I would find a boyfriend if I were to attend this school. I realized just how many places I couldn't go with an Indian passport. The more I'm learning about the world, the more I'm realizing I can enter Serbia, I can enter Ukraine with an Indian passport, apparently. But it was also this understanding that with a US visa, I could go to so many different places, um, just with a student US visa. Maybe a possible expectation that I kind of experienced would would have been like, I wish the people here would be more like people-centered. I just expected everyone to be like, friendly. I mean, they were friendly, it's just that they were friendly when you approach them rather than like like mutual acknowledging of each other. Like if you see someone, it felt like you had to mechanically start a conversation rather than flow into it, like meet someone and you start talking to them. So it kind of felt like you had to like insert yourself in someone's personal space for them to make like a conversation with you. And that was definitely difficult. I kind of just resorted to staying in my room more, just attending class, then going to my room. Like my whole routine was just going to class, back to my room, going to class, back to my room, and staying in my room when I don't have to be in class. Because like, I just felt like I was walking outside and no one was really interested in knowing who was next to them. What happens after you finally made it to these countries and there is no dream to be had? Well, you start asking questions about where the dream came from in the first place. You start looking back and tracing the facts. What did I learn and where did it come from? So you look into the history you've been taught. And that's when things begin to unravel. I realized so many myths I had been educated, the biggest one being colonization. I genuinely learned of colonization in school as the exchange of two cultures when the Spanish came and gave us technology. Like, that is really how I learned about it, with those words and that way. And it would be like, yeah, and there was a lot of wars, so a lot of people died. But it wasn't like these people took over the space, interrupted these communities, murd mass murdered, enslaved. Like, it, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't taught to me in that way. It was not that someone denied that there was a lot of deaths, but it was more about like they brought the Catholic values and they brought salvation and they brought all this technology and then suddenly the country was so much more productive and that was the, the jargon with, with, with which I learned it. So learning history was incredibly like life-changing. That really was the first moment I realized how colonial my education had been. I never expected governments to like blatantly lie in a textbook, you know, but then I think the way Indian history textbooks do it is a lot more subtle. Like they'll miss out swaths of information and we have a very specific viewpoint on the British. We always talk about them as bringing railroads to India. So yes, like we didn't have self-determination, so what? They gave us railroads, they gave us industry, they like advanced us, blah blah blah. They gave us educational institutions, but in India you never talk about the atrocities, the Indian freedom struggle, to this point, students think is a peace struggle, you know, which is the greatest lie that you could ever tell someone. Like so many people died. No one talks about specifically the effect on like indigenous communities in India. Yeah, just like swaths of information that I think is important is missing. So the way history is taught in India is not necessarily by like twisting facts, 
it's more by omitting things. Whereas I was surprised that in some of my friends' textbooks there were like blatant lies, which is not something that I expected. In school, we are taught that we were the victims, which, which is true. Nobody can deny that unless you're a fascist. There was an ethnic cleansing, which is just like a euphemism for like attempted genocide, whatever, and all that. But it was like, it was way less centrist. So when I went to UWC, it was very centrist. You know, it was like, oh, yes, there was a, there was like a, an aggression by the Yugoslav army, by the Serbs. However, there was also like the guerrillas from the Albanian side, which were like sometimes killing civilians. And to me, that was outrageous because yes, of course, that is true. I do not deny that. And we didn't learn that in school, but why do you focus on that? Like, you know, you cannot like, it was a class war. It's, it was like the side that held all the power and the lower classes were seen as scum. They were ra racialized for like 30 years. And then a literal attempted genocide started to happen. There are mass like graves that are still being discovered from time to time and all that. So yeah, I, I found that in UWC outrageous. Like the, the absolute need to be centrist and to hear both sides of the story. I was alive during the war. My mom was pregnant. I was three years old, I think. And we had to leave her house because, you know, there were an ethnic cleansing was happening. I know that one of the times, like the, the first times we had this like truck and in the back of the truck, a shit ton of people had to like go in and that that's how they would get transported away. And uh, I know that my grandma and my aunt were there and my mom was holding me and like, in order to like push me into the like back of the truck thing. And as soon as like <laughs> my aunt and grandma like grabbed me, my mom fainted right in front of my face. <laughs> and there were like a shit ton of people like surrounding her and all that. And they just like, the, the truck just leaves. <laughs> so it was like the biggest prank ever pulled on me. I get so pissed off if somebody calls me white passing in the US for denying my whole people's history. When that international student is stereotyped or targeted by their peers or administrators or faculty, this is not because, not necessarily because they're racist. It may be a form of neo-racism where there is a sense of cultural or national superiority that is used to justify a mistreatment of those outside of one's nation state or culture or nation. And so that's, that's basically what neo-racism is. It doesn't mask biological racism, but is used to justify in this globalizing world, a hierarchy of countries and cultures where some are favored more than others. And that's what, also why I, I don't really buy into just blanket xenophobia, you know, where all immigrants are just not welcome. That, that is certainly not the case. And I think neo-racism adds some more nuance to it in such as suggesting there's a global order of cultures that goes beyond race and thinking beyond the color of one's skin that has to do with how certain countries are positioned in relation to the United States. The simple fact that a lot of the classes here are absolutely American-centric, even when they're supposed to be talking about international matters. Everything here, any conversation goes back to, oh, but the amendments in the in the US, and I'm like, I don't know the amendments of your country. I am, yeah, I'm completely unfamiliarized with this. But I do understand that there is also that feeling on behalf of the American students, because a lot of the international students, we tend to, to refer to a lot of like treaties and like 
particularly in politics, but we refer to a lot of like treaties or a lot of situations and we can compare the situation in the United States with other countries. But I feel discriminated against because I have to adapt to the American students, but the American students cannot adapt to me. I got a lot of interesting questions about India. Do we have a prime minister? Is it true we actually speak that many languages, like different languages across India? Uh, why do we like spicy food? That one I've gotten. Do I like the railways is one. Do I like the railways? Just, and I'm like, yes, because I love the concept of railways. I don't know what they expect me to say. The perception of Costa Rica that I encountered here was, where is it? What is it? It's an island. It doesn't have a military. It is only a country for tourism. It's where all the Americans go and retire. So we don't have an identity. We are just the retirement home for all expats. Um, you don't look Costa Rican. That was one of the comments. And I was like, how does a Costa Rican look like? Tell me about it, you know? Exotic, that word. Oof. I always link exotic to inferior or, or, or like exotic to uncomprehensible or exotic to barbaric even. You know, I think that, I don't know why, but I always make those, those connections and I hate it. International students have reported that they are being stereotyped in class, even by faculty, not just by peers and sometimes administrators as well, but assumptions being made about them being in a so-called third world country, um, sometimes they're excluded. There are policies in place where they can't work above a particular number of hours. They can't work full time on a student visa. But not only that, but also not having the same kind of opportunities when it comes to being a teaching assistant, maybe because of their foreign accent. There's, there are actually programs in universities that help students get rid of particular types of foreign accents. In regards to enrollment, we're not seeing U.S. universities trying to get students from the U.K. or Australia. And so we're targeting students from India, from you know emerging economies, China, of course. I have yet to come across a white international student from the U.K., Canada, Australia, Western Europe, who complained about ways that they were discriminated against negatively, maybe positively, but negatively based on their country of origin. Very unlike the experiences of international students from Asia, from Africa, from Latin America. For me, it's always a question of why do they give such, why do they give these scholarships to people? Like, what's in it for them? Like, why do they want people to like come here from other countries and study? And I think that experience is also someone from like this, like a developing country going to Canada or US for a UWC experience or college, I think, it is definitely introducing people to an ideology and then introducing them to its material ways of living. The interesting thing to me is why the new empires that are so, that are becoming increasingly restrictionary in terms of immigration, why are they so open to students? And you see it with Canada. Ca Canada is kind of closing down towards immigrants, but it's opening up to international students. The same with Ireland. Ireland is opening up to international students, Australia, New Zealand. They're trying to attract a lot of them. So I think it's curious. Why do they not want... Well, first of all, you start with refugees. Why do they not want regular workers, trade workers, manual workers, to come from Turkey and all these other places and Albania and Bosnia and Poland? But they're so welcoming of students, at least for a period of time. And they provide you paths to naturalization. You know, it's only, it's only through, like, studying or marrying that you have paths to naturalization. 
international students in the United States bring in about $42 billion to the U.S. economy. Uh, international education is considered an export considering the funding that international students and their families bring in through tuition, room and board, other expenses. This is all data collected by the U.S. Department of Commerce. But in addition, international students support over 450,000 jobs in the United States. International students certainly contribute to the value of our institutional diversity, promoting our intellectual conversations in class, cultural, social, political exchanges. They bring international perspectives to U.S. classrooms. I think any U.S. professor can vouch for the added value that international students bring into their conversations. And a key rationale is promoting political goodwill. The U.S. being well known for its high quality education attracts global leaders who, you know, where we're basically training, providing a high quality education, but also promoting American values such as democracy and academic freedom. So most of the, the rationales that we read about in the news has to do with the economic benefits, but there's certainly many other intangibles. Studying, first of all, if you take if you take it from the perspective of, and again, we have a lot of countries that are doing this, Canada, Ireland, but take it from the perspective of the U.S. that's sort of a pioneer in international students. Studying exposes you to the culture. In effect, it's going to make you more um, acclimated and accultured to, used to American culture. The signs, the symbols, the soft skills that you need to communicate with Americans and within America. So there's two things. There's two paths. You, you, you try to stay in the U.S. one way or another, or you go back home. Those are both beneficial. If you go back home, you're kind of a living ambassador. Even if you talk shit about the place you came from, you are kind of a living ambassador in many ways. I think, I think this con- the, the, the education game is also a long game. So it's also about like the future, constructing a future with these places. So if you have a lot of, say, Albanians going back to Albania, like starting to work, etc., they're going to make connections with who? American businesses or Irish businesses or like et cetera, et cetera. Like Irish people, they have certain contacts. They have certain understanding of both the culture and the way things move there. So that's a win. If you decide to stay the other way, then you're a naturalized foreigner. And, a na- and naturalized foreigners are the most dedicated people because you always have something to prove. You can fit in, but never perfectly. You're like a... You're like a slightly defectious Lego. And when you have something to prove, you're more dedicated. I definitely am in a position of privilege from getting a liberal arts education and going to UWC. That is completely true. In an ideal world, people wouldn't feel like they have to leave their countries in order to get a better education like I did. Imagine a a whole world where like, I would be happy back home. I would be like, oh, I can get a good education here. I have all my friends here, quite happy. I would need to go to UWC. Education would not be such a private commodified resource that is used for further privatization and to sort of proliferate some types of ways of living more than the other. On a student visa in the United States, you are a temporary migrant. And the assumption is that once you get your degree, it's time to go back home. But what is home anymore? When you're poor, I don't feel like you ever really feel like home. You can move at any time. I did not go home. I got an eyebrow piercing, and then two weeks later, my dad sends me this really dramatic message. He's like, I'm sick, like I'm about to like die or something. And then I'm like, fine, I'll get on a plane. I'll come home. (laughs) 
And I'm standing, I remember this moment so clearly, standing outside my door and just having this thought, do I want to give him a second heart attack by having him see that I have both my ears pierced and I have an eyebrow piercing? So I remember like unscrewing the bolt and then like taking out my piercings and then just like slowly ringing the bell. Then to find out that he was fine, he was just like emotionally blackmailing me to come home. Home still felt like home in a million ways, but it was the reverse culture shock that happens, I think is that first time when you go back home, it was for me incredibly intense and not finding myself in the spaces, not finding myself in my friends, seeing their faces and almost not recognizing them was very difficult. Also seeing how my country had changed. Venezuela was like entering fast crisis mode. So every time you went, even if only a year had passed, it would be very different. And I always felt like a marriage of my two selves, someone who had been my whole life and was kind of destroyed by the person I became when I went to the Lucie and now having to see how both of them could live in my body because in this place I had the history of one but more recently I had the history of another and in some ways believed more in that second UWC person I had become so marrying both of them was incredibly important for me to grow up and to adult. <laughs> These students come to the end of their college experiences with no home to go back to, but they are not wanted by their host country either, a country where they have grown up, learned about themselves and the world, found lifelong friends, and even fell in love. Calling them cosmopolitan fails to capture the displacement they often feel. So I asked them, how do you find a place to belong? If you could imagine a place, what would it look like? I think cosmopolitanism is a way of sort of being or having a way of accepting that you can be tolerant of many ideologies and many ways of living and sort of like it gets treated as this melting pot of like, you know, exciting cultures, da da da. Without actually, it, it takes away the very essential power dynamics that exist between all of the actors acting in a particular realm, which is why I don't like that terminology. Um, which is why I would never call myself a global anything. Or even for that matter, like a sense of belonging, I think, for me is very dangerous, territory-wise, nationalism-wise, and I try not to ascribe to it. I don't believe nation-states as we understand them today should necessarily exist the way they do. Don't believe in a type of nationalism, and I don't think I fit in. I don't, yeah, I don't think there's a place where I feel like I truly, truly sort of belong and enjoy. I think there are certain people I love dearly, and when I'm with them, there are fleeting moments of like bliss where I think I'm happy and I belong in that moment, like temporarily with that person uh, or those people, but then it's gone. Like, it's less of a place. Rather than having identifiers like territorially based, it would definitely be the understanding of like shared means of living and a very a strong emphasis on communal living, sharing means of production, etc. But I think it's difficult for me to even, it's difficult to imagine an imagined community today. Like it's difficult out of the spaces, the very little spaces we have left. I think a positive definition of community comes from understanding how one forges relationships with other people when there are no necessary restrictions or impositions on the way that um, one is to interact with another. The ideal community is one I've not constructed, one that just exists, and I find my ways to become a member of it. I don't know, I really don't like the idea of curating a 
community. You do it every day, right? When you choose what people you surround yourself with. But the idea of doing it with a certain intention feels very like fascist to me. I think I like the idea of having parts of me that belong and represent themselves in any like group I inhabit and parts that don't and parts that adapt and some that find each other with resistance. I'm a lot more comfortable with that. I find it very, yeah, fascist to think I have to like in any way actively have some criteria to discriminate. It's, I think for me, it's a lot more based on a different kind of sensation, intuition, which is not articulable in this setting. I do not know what my imagined community is, but if I had to choose an imagined community, I would choose like the Latin American community in general, just the Latin American countries in general. That is where I would belong. And it would be a community, damn, it's gonna sound very bad, but um, where Spanish is spoken. And of course it is absolutely biased because I can express myself better in Spanish than I can do in English. I really do realize that the Costa Rican culture itself of that, of that non-military, like that pura vida, I hate that phrase, but that pura vida kind of thing, pura vida, we say it for everything. It's just like, everything is fine. And if everything's not fine now, it will be fine later. So that sense of things happen, they happen for a reason, and you'll be alive after them. That is the community that I want to belong to. Thank you to Lali, Elio, Elbunid, Aditjajit, Nozizo, Chachi, and Sofia for sharing your stories with me. Thank you to Jenny J. Lee for letting me use her interview, which was originally aired on Fresh Ed. Thank you to Bertrand Saban for making this project possible, and thank you to Tom Lubey for guiding me in crafting the story. I'm Lushi Kwahba. Thank you for listening.